Hello and welcome to this episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a fantastic interview for you in this session, so stick around and we'll jump right on in. Before we get started this week, I'm proud to announce that Permaculture Magazine of North America has become the first sponsor of this podcast. Incidentally, they've also just celebrated their one-year anniversary this summer. And as the offshoot of the beloved Permaculture Magazine International out of the UK, there is now a regional edition to help strengthen permaculture knowledge throughout North America. This is one of my favorite go-to resources for the latest information on innovation and news in the permaculture world. If you visit permaculturemag.org to sign up for your hard copy subscription today, you'll get the 25-year digital archive of Permaculture Magazine International as a free bonus. And just for listeners of The Abundant Edge, you can now receive 50% off your digital copy subscription right now by finding the discount code in the show notes for this episode. So go now to permaculturemag.org and dive deep into the local and global solutions that go beyond sustainability. Have you ever felt completely bogged down by the weight of current events and news? Things like climate change, government corruption, war and violence seem to be the norm and hard to get away from. I know these things affect me deeply and that's why I'm always looking for positive news and media about solutions and inspiring change. That's why I'm proud to say that I've partnered with one of my favorite sources for just those things. New Society Publishers are book publishers that focus on putting out great books and positive solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they can go on to change the world for the better. And what's more, their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They actually care deeply, not only about what they publish, but also about how they do business. They believe in the authors they take on and the works they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society publishers have the books you need to help build a better world. In fact, the author that I'm interviewing today, Zach Lokes, and his book, The Permaculture Market Garden, are published by them. And if you stay tuned at the end of this interview, I'll tell you how you can be eligible to win your own copy of The Permaculture Market Garden. So stick around for that after the interview. My guest today is Zach Lokes, the owner of the 50-acre Kula Permaculture Farm in the Ottawa Valley of Ontario, Canada. There they run a local CSA, grow over a hundred varieties of vegetables, herbs, fruits, nuts, and trees, and even offer yoga retreats and children's summer camps. Zach is also the author of the book The Permaculture Market Garden, which is an in-depth guide to the techniques that he's developed and refined over many years of running this multifaceted and profitable farm. In this interview, Zach talks about how growing up on a permaculture homestead in northern New Mexico helped to give reference as he developed and grew Kula Farm. He also talks in detail about his permabed system, profit resilience, and finding a balance between the diversity needed in a permaculture farm and the focus and efficiency needed to make a profit. This interview is chock full of practical advice and information that you can take and apply to your own gardening project no matter what size. So grab a notebook and I'll turn things over to Zach. Hey Zach, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, I know there are a ton of questions that I'd love to ask you today, so how about we just jump right in? That sounds good. All right, so let's start off by having you explain a little bit about your background and how you got into market gardening. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I grew up on a permaculture homestead in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and my dad was a permaculture designer, and my brother and I, we'd go around and work with him. And that eventually led to me getting into design and landscape myself, and I did that for a while. And I worked on a, a couple farms, um, you know, growing up and kind of helped out and things like that. But I didn't really get really into agriculture until I moved up to Canada and met my wife, who's sixth generation on a family farm in the Ottawa Valley. And that was, that's pretty much the moment when I really started to get out on the land and grow food in a big way. Now, tell me a little bit more about how you grew up. It was probably pretty uncommon back then to uh, live in sort of a permaculture homestead situation. How did that affect the way that you saw the relationship with the land and agricultural production? Yeah, um, I mean, I guess like most kids, you know, whatever you're used to, you're used to. So 
I, you know, I didn't think much of it until, you know, I left school age, you know, and started getting out into the world a little more. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, remembering back, we just, we had a lot going on, you know, we'd, we'd, as kids, we'd play in the fruit trees and climb around the fruit trees. And, you know, we'd tag along with my dad to job sites and we'd spend a lot of time running around nurseries, picking out plants and learning the names of different plants and loading them into our Mazda van. We had a big Mazda van. We ripped out all the back seats and we just fill them up with trees and take them out to sites and help plant and build swales. And so I think, you know, it gave me a pretty good insight later on into the relationship between plants and the importance between plants and a community and all the benefits, the goods and services that they can provide in terms of fruit and shade and, and uh, shelter and uh, curbing erosion and uh, especially in New Mexico, a big thing is, you know, xeriscaping planting so that you are able to have drought tolerant landscapes because it's so dry and there's so little water, uh, or it's periodically, you know, there's floods. And so you want to prevent erosion. So I think just growing up in the desert and growing up on that homestead gave me a greater appreciation for the, the services that plants can provide and the importance they have for our community. Yeah, no doubt. Now, you've been living in Canada for a while. How long have you been farming using your market gardening system? Yeah, so for market gardening, uh, we've been doing that for 10 years. And uh, that was, yeah, that was an interesting transition because I'd been, you know, mostly gardening and then working, doing ecological resource uh assessment and and research in the boreal forest and got into market gardening we've been doing that for 10 years but then really after about three or four years uh started to get quite large and then now reintegrating permaculture into that pattern so really going the full spectrum i think from from you know a very um, intensive permaculture homestead early on and then getting into market gardening and just really trying to uh, be production oriented and then sort of losing track of the, the kind of bigger picture and how to really improve our soil and how to have a regenerative production that's building soil every year and thinking long term, which is more of a permaculture mindset. So that brought us back towards my roots. And I think where we are now, we've really married the efficiency and practicality of the farmer especially the the family farm with many generations where you you know you really are stick to the land and you you know you're invested in the land and um the idea of uh, permaculture where you create systems that are well designed and will evolve with time so practical you know permaculture really yeah that's very important now, I wanted to start out by talking about a major theme in your book, The Permaculture Market Garden, and that's profit resilience. I know that one of the biggest hurdles for any farmer, but especially permaculturalists, is getting to a point where their business is actually profitable. Can you explain the steps that someone could take to achieve profit resilience? Yeah, for sure. I'm, I think that this is one of the, the big problems that we're facing right now is uh, market gardens are really oriented towards annual production and annual profitability. And not just in the sense that they're growing annuals, but that they're really looking at how they can get return every year. And that's really important. But with profit resilience, you get return every year and you're profitable, but you do this by also investing into the future. So um, it's investing into planting a tree and knowing that there's annual return on that investment. And yes, down the road, you have timber, you have fruit, you have all these other benefits that fruit trees and other trees can provide, but what are the short-term benefits that can be had as well? So that's a, a big part of this idea around profit resilience is getting that annual return from a perennial investment. And I, I like one example I give is, you know, by, by, uh, say planting every 12th bed in your market garden into trees. And these could start out being very low cost trees. I mean, you could, you could buy, you know, oak and uh, maple. You can dig them out of the bush. It could cost you as little as $50 to plant a row of trees in a market garden. And within only a few years, you know, you're getting really good snow retention over the winter 
which is going to help provide cover for uh, soil life. And soil life are critical to uh, the production of vegetables. So in order to have really healthy vegetables, we want to have you know, good colonies of mycorrhizal fungi and nitrogen-fixing bacteria and all the other little creatures that are in the soil that are opening up pore space and creating uh, good networks of nutrient exchange with the plants. And these things are really enhanced by having permanence in the garden and having trees in the garden uh, help create that environment. With the sheltering from the snow and, you know, other benefits include breaking the wind in the summertime. You know, we, we love growing summer spinach and summer salad in a market garden. And yet, in order to do that really well in areas that get quite hot, and in the valley here we get, you know, over 30 degrees Celsius in the summer, and most areas that are market gardening will hit similar temperatures, we spend a lot of money irrigating or creating shade structures in order to grow those profitable, uh, super high value per square foot salad greens and spinach. And uh, we can start to mimic ecosystem services, the shade and uh, the reduced wind desiccation by intercropping with trees. So these are annual returns we get. These returns we get in the short term from planting, intercropping trees into a market garden. And oh, yes, they have all these great benefits that are also accruing in the long term. So that profit resilience is that annual return on perennial investment. Yeah, and I'm sure that, you know, there's a lot of other options aside from oak as well. And down the line, a lot of those can create a, a profit or a return as well through their fruits or nuts or whatever it might be. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, a, a oak is a oak or maple is a nice one to start if you want to just play around and not have to invest a lot. Uh, and then, you know, there's a lot of beneficial uh, tree species that you can plant that have really good profits. and you know, we recommend starting to intercrop with any species that you determine that are environmentally fit to your area, to your farm. And we do this through um, what we call an index guild. And uh, you can learn more about that on my Instagram, uh, Kula Permaculture Farm. I've got a series on that with mini videos up right now. But uh, essentially, an index guild is where around the homestead or the farmstead, you start to do a planting of an edible landscape with, you know, two or three individuals of any one species that you want to start to trial that you think have potential for the farm. And after a few years, you see that they're surviving winters. You know that they're, uh, they're hardy to your area. Uh, you can start to collect seeds and suckers and scion from those species and move them out into a nursery bed in the field. And here they continue to grow some more. Uh, now you're starting to get more fruit and berries off these. So you can start to, you know, determine what the market desirability of these species, um, you know, selling at a local farmer's market or trialing on yourself. And then you really now have a sense of the ones you really want to produce in a big way. And now you have maybe a 300 foot bed in your field and, uh, you have lots of resource for suckers and scions and, um, seeds to collect from. And you can start to propagate those out into your field. So using this three-stage transition method, you can quite effectively and affordably turn a small, medium, or large acreage of farm or market garden over to an agroecology, uh, something that's mimicking an ecosystem, but it's an agroecosystem, maybe a woodland market garden, say. Uh, and it all started with those initial planting that's just really you know, a nice way of beautifying the, the farmstead or the homestead and then uh, moving out into the field. And by the time you start producing in a big way, you know, you know, these are species that will work well together. You have have uh, generated a lot of the production material, the genetic propagation material yourself. So it's not too expensive. And um, you also have really good examples right near the farm and the homestead uh, that are the most mature. So they offer a zone one window into what's happening out in that zone three or four production. And by zone one, two, three, four, you know, within permaculture, just for those who who maybe aren't as familiar, uh, zone one is what's near to the farm or near to the home that you might frequent every day, multiple times a day. And then zone two, three, it's it's less often. And by the time you get to zone four, you're visiting it maybe once or twice a month, right? So you really get a really good window into timing of field operations for fruit trees and nut trees and berries and such. 
That's fantastic. And I really want to get back a little bit more to guilds in a minute. But I know that this is also a really big topic. Um, but could you give a little overview of holistic budgeting, since I know that it goes hand in hand with your concepts of profit resilience? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so when you're holistically budgeting, a, a really big part of that is to keep in mind to pay the farmer a wage. I think that this is this is another aspect of uh, profit resilience that really should be you know held near and dear to the the farmer, especially a startup farm. Uh, they're really trying to get into it is to right away from the get go plan for a wage for yourself. And that way, when you're budgeting and you're, you're thinking about what your expenses are for the season, you are an expense, you know, because it's too easy to, you know, buy more row cover or think you need another tool or, you know, when push comes to shove in the middle of summer, you know, make a, a split second decision. But if you have budgeted in your budget for you to have a wage at the beginning and you've set aside that money, then you're more likely to come out at the end of the year and feel confident to go into the next year because you're actually making a living at farming uh, instead of just scraping by. Um, and there's amazing how many things, you know, swallow up money because we don't budget property. Oh, it's all the little things, you know, the, the shear bolts, we just keep buying them and buying them until one, until we, you know, consider, well, why are they breaking so often, you know, or, um, just take, buying something just because you think, well, this will be, you know, better, but is it, is it really better? Or is, you know, you know, feeling like you've made a good living at the end of the year, the best thing for the farm after all. So farms have to be profitable or they turn into parking lots and, uh, holistic, holistic budgeting. This is from holistic resource management. And I really recommend that anybody who's interested in that, uh, you know, dive into the wealth of information out there, including there's entire courses you can take on holistic resource management, uh, from the Alan Savory Institute. And that's a, a really valuable resource for any farmer and any homesteader that's trying to transition into uh, production that is commercial. No doubt. Yeah, it's, a, it's an essential ingredient that so often gets overlooked while people uh, really dive deep into the ecology or the farming methods and all of these things. But to be effective as a business, you really need to get these skills down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. So tell me as well if this has been your experience. Um, but with most of the permies and the farmers that I've worked with and consulted with, they often have trouble striking a balance between over-focusing on a few cash crops and growing them intensively, often as a monoculture, or being over-idealistic with their land and going too far with diversity while struggling to make a profit. How have you found a balance between these two things? Yeah, I mean, this is a key point. I'm really, really glad you bring that up because this is the number one thing sometimes that's on my mind is that the the permaculturalist is uh, you know, a jack of all trades and master of none. And they want to do everything. You know, the, the number of times someone has told me, you know, cause we get lots of interns on the farm and I talk to lots of people all, all around, uh, the Canada and the U S and they're, they're saying, Oh, well, you know, I want to get this piece of land and I want to have chickens and goats and bees and a garden and orchard and a reforestation and alternative building and like every cool thing that's happening on the planet, they want to do it. And, you're going to be exhausted and you're going to be stretched thin because all of those things take a different skill set and they all require different tools and they all require different labor. And in the end, you know, I would rather see farms focus, homesteads focus on a, a guild of enterprises within their property. So just like we have a guild of plant species, that can get planted out in a garden or into an agroecology in the field. Maybe there's a, a dominant nut tree and maybe an understory fruit tree and a vine like a grape and a ground cover, and they're all helping fill together a niche. We can take that concept of the guild and apply it to business and say, what's the guild enterprise of your farm? And I always aim for three. And I use this idea of a, the rule of three as a kind of way of helping simplify decision making. So if you ask me a question and the answer is a number, I'm going to give you back the answer three. And, and I, so it seems silly, but it occurs to me that, you know, one, you're, you're all alone. And when you have two, you know, you're just two talking together, having a conversation. But the moment you put three, it's the first time you have complex interactions. And so 
as a way of just kind of simplifying things, I just take three and say, all right, let's start with that. So if you're going to go and start a farm, then what are your three enterprises that you're going to start to think about? And your land can help teach you about what might work well on it. And your community can help teach you about what they're going to want to support, what they're in, what's in demand. And you and your skill set and your goals and who you are is going to also help dictate what is going to fit into that enterprise, that guild enterprise. And so then you build around that. And three acts as both the minimum and the maximum for diversity in a way. So we can diversify within the enterprises to an extent, but we're not just going to keep throwing endless things into it. Uh, and this, this helps kind of keep us in check. So, you know, for us, for instance, we, we produce and do, um, vegetables and fruit and we distribute through a CSA. That's an enterprise. And we do heirloom seed garlic and we distribute, uh, throughout Canada. We have an heirloom seed garlic business and we do mail order and that's an enterprise. And then we do research and design and consulting. We do education and that's an enterprise. And so these enterprises now are really the foundation of our business. And we're really going to think if we add new things or we're going to see how they fit tidily into one of these enterprises. And then we can work on having the enterprises actually act like a guild and have symbiosis between them. So how do they share resources? You know, uh, how do they uh, create an input out of a waste? How do they inform each other's decision-making on the farm? And how do they balance labor on the farm? So they work as a guild, which is good. But then back to your original question, it's so important to see how that simplicity actually results in success when this kind of endless ideal of doing everything usually doesn't result in as much success. And ironically, I would say that farms will end up being more biodiverse and the landscape as a whole will be more biodiverse and profitably diverse if we have all our farms focused on these kind of guild enterprises. And then within the, the regional landscape and the local landscape, we see a farm community guild. And so you know, you don't have to do everything because you can trade your honey for cheese and you can, uh, exchange root cellar vegetables for, uh, eggs. You know, these things can happen on that greater landscape scale. And if we look at an ecosystem, this is more parallel to a real ecosystem. When you look at the patchwork of an ecosystem across, uh, a region, um, it's, it's, it's diverse, but there's also great swaths of things happening, you know, Every small, you know, third acre, one acre, 10 acre doesn't have everything that we're talking about. So I think a little bit of the permaculture idea that the cycle has to be completely closed within the farm. Well, that's putting borders on ecology and agroecology, which is really contradictory to what agroecology is. It's borderless. It moves and fluctuates and it's about that greater connectivity. So I would say that that simplicity is going to lead to success because the farmer will be focused and not stretched too thin. They'll be able to focus their investments, focus their skill building, and focus their marketing. And then across the greater landscape, they're going to get all of what they need, you know, in terms of healthy products for themselves. And the overall landscape is going to be very, very rich in diversity and profitable productivity. I really love how you laid that out. And frankly, that was one of my biggest takeaways from reading your book. Um, I'm in a personal transition right now from earlier in my business when I had taken on a ton of different things, which while I am sure that I could have done any one of them competently, when I took on too much, I ended up spread thin and the quality of certain aspects started to fail. And uh, in learning exactly what you've been talking about, um, I've switched to focusing on a couple of things that I know that I can do to the, the level of quality that I want to be known for and establish as a reputation for my business. But there's still enough diversity within that that I don't um, over-focus on any one thing and cut off options to expand. So I think that's really 
not only valuable in farming, but in other aspects of business and, like you said, community interaction. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, and in that you build in that resiliency, too, because the farm itself, you know, has the potential to move in many different directions, you know, by by thinking like a permaculturalist and building layers into your farm the next generation, the next steward doesn't actually have to do exactly what you're doing because you've, you've laid out the land and you've built up the potential for them to take it in many directions. You know, we currently aren't doing honey on the farm, but by God, could someone come in here and do it real well, real quick, sure. you know? Yeah, exactly. It leaves those uh, those openings for other people to fill if they, you know, found that that was their specialty, that was their focus without having, you know, a whole bunch of little arms and a lot of different enterprises, all of which are being done sort of at a at a compromised level. Now, I wanted to get back to what you were talking about perennial systems, because this is something that we always come back to in permaculture and frankly, in any type of land regeneration type of enterprise. You mentioned earlier uh, mostly about different types of tree species and the benefits that they can have in your market garden. Can you talk about maybe some other layers, either berries or bushes or even substrate mm -hmm. levels, um, talking about mycelium, that could be perennial systems that have other benefits for your annuals? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, um, <clears throat> it, it's important to remember that, you know, the most important layer in a way is that soil layer and that soil life layer. So really, if we, you know, if we start and we look at a, say, a woodland ecosystem and we say, well, we want to mimic a woodland ecosystem. We want to create a woodland agro ecosystem. So out in the field, we want to start to intercrop dominant tree species, you know, chestnuts and walnuts and pecans. And, and then we want to go down a little bit more and maybe have mulberries. And then down a little more and start to have, you know, full-size fruit trees. And then dwarf fruit trees, pears, Asian pears, plums. And then we can have shrub layers. You know, we can have uh, hazelnuts and, and elderberries. And below that, we can have a bush layer. We can have uh, currants and uh, canes like raspberries and black raspberries. And below that, we can have an herb layer various uh, flowering layers for bouquets and we can have ground covers uh, like thyme and strawberries and mints and we can have uh, fungi that are growing you know uh, off from uh, freshly cut wood or in the actual ground layer itself on wood chips and below that we have the soil layer and in the soil layer there's a root layer and a tuber layer and a rhizome layer and there's all those things that can be harvested as well uh, but really, the whole time, the thing that we're cultivating that is the most important is the soil life layer and that layer that has mycorrhizal fungi. And, you know, the majority of food plants, the majority of plants on the planet have evolved over all of their evolution in association, you know, with mycorrhizal fungi. And so without that, they're really walking around without toes. You know, it's not easy. And you know, there's bacteria in there that are fixing nitrogen right from the atmosphere in association with legumes. And there's nematodes and earthworms and arthropods. And there's protozoa. There's so much going on. And essentially what these, these organisms are doing as a whole is they're, they're taking up nutrients and they're storing it in their bodies and holding it in the soil. And then they're, you know, being eaten and releasing nitrogen and they're dying and decomposing and releasing nutrients and they're tunneling and opening up the soil and leaving biopore space and creating better soil aggregation so that the mineral part of the soil, the part that's actually different textures of mineral material, which has been eroded from the rocks, the raw rocks of our planet, and that's the sands and the silts and the clay those textures, that's all being bound together by the organic matter and uh, the soil life manure, I call it micro manure. And all of that's binding that together and creating this aggregate that has mineral and organic and living. And that in itself is a super valuable asset to the market garden. 
Because if we consider for a second that officially speaking, soil is 45% mineral, 25% air, 25% water, and about 5% organic matter, then if we don't have 50% of our soil as pore space to hold air and water, then we're not even talking about soil. And in order to have that pore space, we need to be able to manage that it's not compacted. And we need to be able to have the functioning soil ecosystem and the tree roots and plant roots that are opening it up and preventing that pore space from being lost. And I always like to give a really solid example of why that's so important. So if we consider that plants take up their nutrients in solution, that the nutrients are actually brought in soil solution, a water solution to the roots, then if we don't have the pore space for that water to be there, then that nutrient is not actually going to be able to be taken up by the plants. And, and we consider that the soil life itself, you know, also helps bring it up. Like mycorrhizal fungi literally are taking up nutrients and exchanging it with our plants for root exudates, for sweet sugars, because the plant photosynthesizes. So the plant's growing and says, hey, you know, I'm going to bring in this sugar from the, or make sugar out of the sun. And I'm going to send it down to you. And they're like, great, that's awesome. Let me, let me help you get water and let me help you access nutrients and, you know, even communication. Cause now we're seeing that there's research that's showing that the mycorrhizal fungi actually help plants communicate and that a dying tree in a forest will actually send out its carbon to its progeny in the surrounding understory. So there's a lot of value there, but just, just the pore space alone and understanding how essential that is shows us that a compacted soil that's denuded of soil life, why you can pour as much fertilizer on as you want. It's not going to matter a bit. It's going to A, wash away, and B, there's nowhere in the soil for it to be taken up into solution and brought to the plant. And there's no soil life to help it get there. And you want to have this complex aggregate with good cation exchange capacity, so the soil itself has a high capacity to hold on to nutrient cations and anions and then release them back to that solution. And that's what we want. We want a soil that's able to uh, sequester, store, cycle, release nutrients to our plants. And that's one of the key things of why we should really appreciate of all those ecosystem layers and those agroecosystem layers that are integrated into guild production, that we should really consider the, the real high value of that soil layer and the life that's in it and the structure that is so important as well. Absolutely. Now, I know you take real care to facilitate these interactions and these complex relationships in your market garden and specifically the relationship between perennials and annuals that help to aid uh, in the soil layer that you just talked about. You also mentioned uh, that you employ a system called permabeds. Can you tell me about how that works and how someone could mimic this system to make their own garden more resilient and productive? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so the permabed system that we use is one that has a whole bunch of benefits for us. And uh, the first benefit, just based on what we were talking about, is helping conserve soil. So the permabeds are... are are essentially permanent raised beds or permanent agroecological beds. And what we're doing is scooping path material <clears throat> and applying it to the bed top. And we do this on our scale by having a bed forming equipment with large double discs on either side that go behind our tractor tires and lift up the material and put it on top. And you can do that with smaller equipment. You can do that with a shovel. You can do that by building the bed up and then and then putting chip mulch between. The key idea here is that the beds are reformed and not destroyed. And so you never erase what's happening on the landscape. You're always building on it every year. So there's two really important parts to that. One is that the core of these beds is never being destroyed. And so the soil life is conserved in the core of the bed. Because we apply path material to the top of the bed, when we do a shallow harrowing in order to prepare a seedbed, we are not disturbing the core of the bed. We're just disturbing the recently applied material to the top. 
So that helps the colonies of fungi and bacteria and all those beneficials maintain their populations and recolonize back out into the bed top to help uh, our recently seeded vegetables. So that's really key. You know, if we think about uh, what we do in agriculture, a lot of times is we plow the whole field and then we disc the whole field and then we till the whole field. And a lot of the beds that are being made in, in, in market gardens are actually just uh, area between the tires that's being fluffed up with a tiller and uh, area that's the path that's being compressed by the tires. So it's really not actually a bed. It's more just a fluffed area with compaction on the sides. So we want to get away from that. And the other thing is that since they plow and disc every year, and I understand this because I've, I've done it, and what, what happens is you don't actually have your bed in the same place every year because you're plowing and disking it. So you lose that, that uh, sense of place in space. So the first main thing is that you get that soil conservation in the middle. And then the next really important thing is that the, because they're permanent in the landscape and you reform them, that you really do make place out of space. And so every time you give a bed a permanent place in the landscape and you repeat that across the whole landscape, with that repetition comes the opportunity to pattern. So just like if you're knitting, you can do a knitting stitch and then a purl and then a knit and then a purl and then a knit and then the purl. And so we can do that across the landscape. We can choose to alternate the maturity of our vegetables in order to gain all sorts of amazing opportunities for um, relay cropping and cover cropping and crop cover cropping where you leave a crop to mature into cover crop by alternating the maturity of the annuals. But also we can create more complex patterns like having every 12th bed be put into a perennial species or having every 12th bed put into a dominant emergent perennial species like nut trees and fruit trees and then have the next 12th bed put into a regenerative species of perennial like berries or uh, any sort of berry like raspberries or elderberries. Things that you may want to occasionally access with a tractor and mow them down or drive over it then and apply compost, things like that. So we can create all these complex patterns by having that permanence. So the permabeds, it's a system of land management that allows us to move towards an agroecology that allows the land to evolve, to build on every year. So instead of erasing it every year, we're actually building on it every year and helping the soil life proliferate in these soil cores and helping the land transition to a more diverse agroecosystem. Absolutely. Those things are essential. And I'm glad uh, there are more voices coming out all the time advocating for exactly what you just talked about. Now, here's one question that pretty much everybody wants to know the answer to at some point. And there are a whole varying range of answers from depending on who you ask. And that is, how much food can an average person realistically produce on a given size of land? Let's say a quarter acre or a half acre, just to relate to most people who have yards. Um, obviously, that is going to change as you get into larger acreages. But can you give an example from your experience? I mean, you can produce a ridiculous amount of food. If you think about the photosynthetic strata that you can integrate. I mean, if we have just one bed on our farm, I think in terms of beds, right? So if we have one bed on our farm and we have them at 300 feet, and we can place out across that bed a pear tree at, you know, every, say, 20 feet. And each one of those pear trees has the potential to yield 300 pounds of fruit. And then in the understory of that, we can produce all sorts of things that will love the shade and proliferate in the shade, such as mint and other shade-loving species in the bed adjacent to it, like summer spinach. And, you know, in between those pear trees, we have sheltered sugar maples that are growing in the shade and are eventually going to emerge and produce syrup. And, you know, once the syrup season is kicking in 20-some years down the road, and you're also taking 
you're thinning them out, then you have nice maple logs to grow shiitake. And they want to grow in the, that shady area, so you know you set them up right there in that shaded area, and you you know put over um, you know a couple more beds. Maybe you set up a shiitake production, and your paths are growing in time. And you know before any of this was established, maybe these beds were all in raspberries, and the raspberries you know helped to deter the deer and allowed these things to establish. And you had annuals like squash growing next to it. So let's just say these are three beds that we have and that these three beds eventually turn into a section of about 12 of these beds because now we've proliferated all of the seeds and suckers and scions from the initial nursery bed across an entire permaplot, which for me is 12 beds. And so now we have a third of an acre that we've, you know, essentially quite affordably propagated from this one bed into this diverse ecosystem that I just described. And what is the yield of that third acre? I can't even begin to imagine what that total yield would be. Especially as it reaches different levels of maturation, right? That's right, because it's just always evolving. So, you know, we start with our annual field and we can talk about, you know, the yield per square foot of, of vegetables and, you know, you can get a you can get a bag of lettuce you know every half every uh, two two or three bags every square foot and you know but then you can you know r- turn that into another crop and crop it two or three four times in a season depending on the maturity of the vegetables and the more intensive you are the more it comes out of it but as soon as you start to go vertical i mean it's just it's it's absolutely it, we don't have a good way of calculating it yet because We've never really seen these mature systems. You know, the closest examples are the systems that we had in North America before Europeans came over. And those were with less domesticated species. So when we start to mimic those original agroecologies with the domesticated species that we now have today, and in the organized manner that something like permabeds and other land management offer, we are talking about yields that are just astronomical. Absolutely. I mean, we're not even talking yet about adding animal layers or talking about, you know, like you said, maybe if you're coppicing trees later on and growing mycelium or mushrooms from that as well. It, like that's you right. said, it's a constantly evolving system. And that's one thing that I really like when people point out when I ask questions like this is that the answer could vary significantly by year, also by decade. Um, you may start mm-hmm. out mostly just producing annuals while your trees and shrubs mature. But as your system mm-hmm. starts to reach those later years and, and mature later on, you add all these other layers from which you can start drawing resources from. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we're not even talking yet about the sheer savings that you have when you start to have things that produce on their own. Exactly. Um, so a, a great example of something that people can do early on by adopting a permabed system is I have a patch now of kale that self-seeds itself. And it's been, you know, three or four years that it self-seeded itself. And it's never weedy. It's full of kale. The kale matures so early that the flea beetles, which, you know, anybody in the in the Northeast will will know, just go crazy for brassicas, that we get perfect kale. And yet I didn't even have to prep the bed. I didn't have to buy the seed. I didn't have to seed them in trays. I didn't have to have people transplant them into the field. And I have the kale way earlier because the bed is permanent. And I, I said, I assigned it that duty. And you can do that with any bed. Any bed can serve any purpose. And then it has all these other benefits on top of that, such as the massive amount of flowers that were on it early on, which had tons of beneficials and pollinators. And when you intercrop with fruit trees, then they're holding those bees over for the fruit trees and for other things that require pollination. So we have this, this building, this accruing of goods and services in this type of model. There's so many things and you can always take advantage of opportunities because in a permanent bed system, when you see something happening and you say, my God, look at what's going on in that bed. You know what? I'm going to take that bed out of my general, you know, guild crop rotation and I'm going to let it do what it's doing. You can find all sorts of amazing things. 
You know, we have an example of this where we have a bed that we, we mulched down for one crop. And then we saw that all the heritage sugar maples had germinated off our hillside. They'd blown off the hillside into this bed and it was acting like a perfect nursery. And we just simply took it out of the rotation and turned it into a nursery bed for these heritage sugar maples. And my goodness, if we don't have 6,000 sugar maples that are taller than me in it right now. Wow, fantastic. And now we're pulling those out. And it didn't cost me anything. When you let your land mature, it gives you so many things. And if you're dynamic a system enough, you can take advantage of those. You know, you can sell those sugar maples. You can use them as, you know, trees to intercrop into the farm. You know, they become uh, windbreaks. We're coppicing with them. And we're going to have hardwood tomato steaks. Wow. Cost me nothing. Yeah. So this is one of these beauties of the permabed system back to, you know, above and beyond just the value of the acre or the bed. But that permanence itself just lets you take advantage of the opportunities that are going to increasingly exist when you commit to an evolution of the overall agroecosystem. Yeah, that's a great example of that resilience that everyone's shooting for. Now, after studying and tweaking and working with market gardens for this long, what advice would you give to someone looking to get started right now? What would be their first steps? Yeah, um, so one thing is, like, I like this idea of the of the blue ocean strategy where, you know, the the ocean is full of fishes and they're all feeding in there. And, you know, if you bring the exact same thing into, into that ocean, the same thing that everybody else around you is bringing to that ocean, same products to that farmer's market, say, you know, it's going to become a red ocean because you're going to start to have a lot more competition. But if you bring a new product into that ocean, not only are you not competing with those other products for those fishes, but you're attracting new fishes into the ocean as well. So I would say for anybody getting into market gardening, you know, look around you at, wh- at what p- your neighbors are doing and what the other the other farmers in your farmer's market or in your your local food shed are doing and and ask yourself how you can you can build on their successes and, you know, bring something new to the market to create that farm guild community where all the farms are profitable in their enterprises that they do and complementary to each other. So you can both trade with them, which is an amazing thing, as well as you know, prevent competition with them and rather try to enhance that whole overall community. That's fantastic advice. Now, what have been some of your biggest learning experiences over your years of farming? What are some things that have caused you to sort of reconsider what you were doing and take a new approach? Yeah, well, I mean, some of it, some of it, a lot of it comes down to just how we came to the permabed system idea and a lot of the the overall um, discussion around soil health is just, you know, standing out every spring and looking at a plowed field that had to be, you know, turned into organized space and just being like, God, you know, like, <laughs> I don't want to start from scratch every year. I want to build on it. And, you know, looking at, you know, bare beds of soil everywhere and just seeing how unnatural it was and, and uh, knowing that there was something, something more to it. Uh, and yet really understanding and valuing that we need to be efficient and practical because we're a market garden. We can't just have this, you know, chaotic abundance out there either. Um, so those were all some things that were big takeaways. Uh, a really important thing is to build on your mistakes and, and to understand that, you know, a mistake is something learned. And so you never feel, never feel like you can't make mistakes. And, and I, in fact, I know that there's so many, innovative companies out there that encourage mistakes now with their employees because that's how you create innovation. And, you know, I would, I, I would be, I would be, you know, very honest to say that a lot of the innovation that we have on the farm is from making mistakes and being forced into tight spaces and by really wanting to do something better after having done it bad, you know, and that's, and that's something to really value when you're, when you're getting started is to, is to learn from that. And one of the great ways of doing that is to, is to keep a journal. And I have something I call a, a whole hemisphere journal. And what I do is I start at the beginning of the season and I take notes through it simply based on the date, you know, so it's, it's really like a traditional journal. And what you do is you have a left hand page and a right hand page and you take all your notes, your thoughts, your observations, everything that just occurs on that left hand page. 
and you always leave that right-hand page blank. And so then at the end of the year, you have a really good recording of all that little bit of knowledge that came in. You know, the flowering of plants, the mistakes with the turnip, you know, the possibility of a new crop you saw at a market. And then at the end of the year, you can go back through, you can digest everything you wrote, all your little data points, and then you could turn it over and turn it into direct actions on that right-hand page. And so you can directly improve, directly utilize that feedback in order to evolve for the next year. Fantastic. Now, before I let you go here, I know that at Kula Farm, where you are, you do a lot of events and workshops for the community as well. How can people learn more about your events and get in touch? Yeah, for sure. Um, Well, so probably the best ways to find out about that are uh, through our website, uh, www.kulafarm.ca. And there's a calendar on there that tells about all the uh, events we have on the farm, uh, workshops that we run on the farm. Uh, you know, I do workshops on gardening and root cellar design, off-grid living, and my wife's doing workshops on uh, nutrition and cooking fresh, simple meals. And uh, so that's all online there. And you can also read more about our book, The Permaculture Market Garden, and uh, just learn more about what we're about. Um, and then on that calendar as well, it just shows anywhere else that, you know, I'm going to be speaking in the in the coming year. So uh, I'll be in Oregon in August at the Mother Earth News Fair, and then I'll be into uh, Pennsylvania and uh, Topeka, uh, and I'll be at the Acorn Conference out in in uh, the east coast of Canada and at the Guelph Conference in Ontario. So you know any of these things you can see on our on on our website, and we keep it updated so you can get an opportunity to come to the farm for something or to catch up with us somewhere else at an event or workshop or conference. Um, and then if you want to, you know, keep up with us on a, um, on a daily basis, uh, our Instagram account, Kula Permaculture Farm, um, I'm always updating that with pictures and uh, know-how and little videos. And, you know, I play games with mystery plants and stuff and get people to, you know, kind of think about what, what some of the different plants possibilities out there are. So those are all great ways of uh, following up on some of these things if, if folks are, are wishing to get more involved. Wonderful. Well, I'll put links to all of those on the show notes for this episode. And Zach, thank you so much for a very informative chat. Like I said, I really enjoyed your book and I'll put a link to, uh, is it through New Society that people can pick that up for themselves as well? Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure speaking. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time and I hope we can do a follow-up sometime. There's still a ton of questions I'd love to get to at some point. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'd really enjoy that. It was a real pleasure speaking with you, and uh, thank you so much. Right back at you. Take care. Bye. So if you were as inspired as I was listening to Zach talk about the wealth of information in his book, then here's your chance to win your very own copy of The Permaculture Market Garden. In order to be entered, all you need to do is leave a review of the Abundant Edge podcast on iTunes and send a screenshot of your review to info at AbundantEdge.com. From there, I'll pick my favorite and send you a brand shiny new hard copy of the Permaculture Market Garden. For those of you awesome people who've already left a review on iTunes, you can still win by sharing this podcast episode on Facebook. Just tag the Abundant Edge in your post and send your screenshot by email for your chance to win. As soon as you're selected, the lovely people at New Society Publishers will send you your hard copy if you live in the U.S. or Canada. Or if you live outside of those two countries, they'll send you a digital copy straight to your email. So submit your entry to win today to info at AbundantEdge.com. So before we wrap up this show for the week, I've got some exciting news about the upcoming months. And I'm joined here now with my good friend and founder of Atitlan Organics, Shad Goodsey. Hey, buddy, what's new? Oh, man, so much is happening. First off, though, I just want to say thanks for having me, man. I really love your podcast. And I actually had a great time doing that interview back in one of the earlier episodes. Anyway... Probably what's most exciting is our new collaboration between Atitlan Organics and Abundant Edge. As you know, we've been offering permaculture design courses for over six years now, and they really have become a staple here in Lake Atitlan. In particular, though, the Intro to Permaculture course is just an amazing way for travelers, gardeners, architects, basically anyone to fully immerse themselves in this new paradigm of permaculture design. Like, honestly, you can't take this course 
and still see the world the same way afterward, man. Yeah, it's that's life changing. Sure. But like I said, what I'm most excited about is that now, thanks to our collaboration, we're going to be able to offer your natural building course immediately after every one of our intro to permaculture courses. Literally, this two-week offering is like possibly the most complete package that I know of available anywhere. Basically, with these two courses alone, I think that someone should have everything they need to start their own regenerative project or just their own regenerative lifestyle. That's, that's what I'm excited about, man. But uh, yeah, what about you? What's going on? Man, well, you know already that me and the Abundant Edge team are gearing up for a big season as well. I mean, starting in November, we'll be breaking ground on a regenerative farming demonstration site, which is, of course, right down the hill from your farm. We'll be building animal pens, a classroom, outdoor kitchens and lounge areas connected to houses, and it's all going to be made out of natural materials. I mean, the site is going to serve as a demonstration farm for perennial and regenerative farming methods for years and years to come. And we'll even be offering courses and internship opportunities to people who want to learn for themselves about how to build with natural materials and set up their own farms. Heck yeah. That sounds amazing, man. And honestly, this is just about the best place in the world to learn all these things too. I mean, this little town of Sununa in the gorgeous tropical mountains of Guatemala, like right here on the shores of Lake Atitlan, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And on top of that, you have this traditional indigenous Mayan culture that's still rich and alive. And probably my favorite part is that we have this world international community of alternative people that are open to new ideas and really putting things into practice. I mean, within walking distance of the Bamboo Guest House, you've got loads of things going on. we got the projects that we've already talked about, but you also have yoga retreat centers. You have Charlie Rendell's Natural Bamboo Building School. You have Love Probiotics. you got Fungi Academy. And honestly, loads more alternative, blow-your-mind type stuff. I honestly just feel like this is where it's all happening. Yeah, man, it really does. And I want to get as many people as possible in on these projects, but we've got to make sure that they've got the skills first. So what do you say? Let's offer a big discount to those who sign up for both courses. I mean, all food and lodging in the amazing Bamboo Guest House is already included in the tuition. So this will be like the best deal that we've ever offered. That's a great idea. Because I mean, people can still take just one course if that's what they're into or if they can't make the full two weeks. But this will actually make the two courses more accessible to even a wider audience of people. And that way more people can get the knowledge that they need to get started doing what they want to do. So hey, to all of you listening out there, we really want passionate and driven people like you to come and be a part of the community and the ecosystem that we're building out here. So if you're ready to take the next step and really dive in, there's no better time to invest in yourself by joining us on this journey to a regenerative future. Shad, how can they get in touch with us and see the upcoming events and workshop schedule? For sure. Well, for start, they can either go to atilanorganics.com and click on the workshops tab, or they can check out abundantedge.com and click on the education tab. Either one of these will get you all the information you need for all of the courses that we're offering in the months ahead. We're really looking forward to working and collaborating with all of you inspired and enthusiastic people out there. But even if you can't make it out yourself, I'm sure you know someone in your network who would jump at the chance to get involved in this positive, regenerative, and truly life-changing projects. So this is Oliver Gaucher and Chad Goodsey inviting you to come and be a part of the regenerative future that we are building. Can't wait to see you here. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer, from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Right now, you can get a discount code for 50% off your digital subscription to the incredible Permaculture Magazine of North America, simply by finding the code under the show notes of this episode. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be a conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. 
Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you again on next week's session.